0: Our text today is Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. If you'll make your way there, I'll be with you in just a moment. And the message is entitled, How Will You Respond to the Message of Jesus? In this marketing and media age that we live in, there are significant resources put toward major announcements, so they have the greatest effect. The timing of major announcements is carefully considered so that it will land at a time when people would be most likely to hear it or to receive it. The platform that announcements are made on also has significance because it carries meaning with it as far as what the particular announcement means and and how important it is. Effort is made to generate conversations after a major announcement is uh, put forth so that people are talking about it and there's some type of momentum that will follow after it. And a lot of m- announcements are also made with a significant amount of hype. Uh, they do it on the biggest stage in order to get the most impact. We're considering today an account in the life and the ministry of Jesus when he announced himself. Uh, almost uh, two millennia ago, a little over two millennia ago, in a small, overlooked community. He announced himself as the anointed one, as the long-awaited Messiah, as the fulfillment of God's promises. And I would say to you that the timing of that announcement was important because the message has already come forth with the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. He's already burst onto the scene and He's preaching a message of a baptism of repentance. And then Jesus has come. Jesus has publicly been baptized. He's been led into the wilderness. He's been tempted by the devil. He's overcome those temptations. And now his public ministry is front and center. And I think when Jesus made this announcement, the platform was important because it was in the synagogue. The synagogue represented The place of worship. It was where the people who saw themselves as God's people came and where they would talk about and proclaim the anticipation of the long awaited Messiah. And after Jesus makes this announcement, there was a lot of conversation that was generated, uh, some for the good and some not for so good. And then there was momentum that took place after it. And I think that this particular announcement in the synagogue set the trajectory kind of set the groundwork for the ministry of Jesus from that point going forward. So we begin reading Luke's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 14. This is what the Word of God says. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Father God, we thank you today for your word, we thank you for your son, and we thank you for your spirit. We ask now in these moments that as we are brought into the scene in the synagogue there in Nazareth, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, that we would see the significance of what happened when Jesus read from the scripture and then sat down to teach what it meant about him as the Messiah. And I pray that we would answer that question, what will we do with the message of Jesus? And that we would answer it rightly, that it would be by faith in all that we do. So bless your word now and help us to understand it, that we might make application to our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first century synagogue service began with prayers and blessings and then readings from the Hebrew Bible. Readers were designated for each of the passages. And if it happened that there was a visiting rabbi or teacher or someone else of significance uh, present, that they would be invited to read from the prophets. Jesus was raised, as you know, by Joseph and Mary in Nazareth. He's already been referred to as a preacher in Capernaum and in the region of the Galilee. So in accordance with their custom, Jesus was invited to, to read, and then to comment on the scroll of Isaiah. When he stood up and read, he read from what we know today as Isaiah 61. From what we know about the synagogue services then, the reading from the Mosaic law or the Torah was usually prescribed while the person chosen to read from the book of the prophets had the ability to actually choose the passage that he was going to read. So, when Jesus was given the Isaiah scroll, he unrolled it to this particular passage from Isaiah 61, and he proclaimed some very significant things about himself. This was Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah. This was uh, nearly 700 years before the time of Jesus. And it's a prophecy about the Messiah in his work. As prophet priest and king and the passage served as a launching point for the ministry of jesus and he rolled up that scroll he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and he began to teach from what was a customary position of being seated while he taught and there's some things that we learn about the message of jesus that brings us face to face with him as the messiah There's some things here that we need to consider, some truths about Jesus that would cause us to answer the question one way or the other. So I want us to walk through this passage in the next few minutes and see those truths that rise to the surface from the Word of God. And the first one is this. Jesus has the power of the Spirit upon him. Jesus has the power of the Spirit upon him. In verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of Of the Spirit. Now remember, Galilee refers to both the Sea of Galilee and the region of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. This would be the area where Jesus would make a great impact in miracles and in ministry. He lived in that area and was brought up in Nazareth of Galilee from the time that he was a small boy until he was up uh, to his point of public ministry around the age of 30, according to the Gospel of Luke. And the Galilee would serve as a major point of ministry for Jesus, the headquarters of Jesus ministry was sort of Capernaum, as far as uh, how his ministry unfolded and It was because of his teaching that the fame of Jesus began to rapidly spread. People knew what he was capable of, they knew the words that he was proclaiming, there was popular interest in what he was saying, there was a secondary curiosity about the things that he was doing there was an excitement that was building. Around the ministry of Jesus. And when he lived there in Nazareth, he would have worshiped in this very synagogue with his family. So this was familiar territory. The people to whom he was speaking were familiar to him, even though there had been uh, some time difference here. And he would visit Nazareth twice after the beginning of his public ministry. And this is one of those instances, at least as far as what we have recorded in the scripture. Verse 18 indicates the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me. Now here again, we're brought into this mystery of the Trinity, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. At the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit of God descended like a dove on Jesus. The voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Son of God was there in their midst as he was baptized. And now again in the synagogue, there's a reference to Jesus as the Messiah who has been anointed. He's been anointed as the rightful King of Israel, but he's being anointed here as a prophet. And when we speak of someone being anointed, it's not as familiar language for us in the 21st century. But in the days of the Bible, it had both an agrarian application... As well as a spiritual application, it had an agrarian application because they would use anointing of the sheep in order to protect them from the insects that would actually burrow in their ears and potentially even kill them, so the shepherd would put oil on the head of the sheep in a protective measure from the insects that would bother the sheep but then anointing is spoken spoken of. Uh, in a considerable way really in the old testament and it became symbolic of blessings and protection and empowerment so the jewish people would actually anoint the altar when they came to bring the sacrifices to god priests were anointed with oil kings were anointed with oil and the anointing signified two things the person had been chosen for a particular task And they had been empowered to carry out whatever the task was that they had been called to. So spiritually, anointing signifies being chosen and then having the strength or the blessing of God upon us. And this reference here is obviously to a spiritual anointing. The book of Acts in chapter 10 and verse 38 adds, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So, when Jesus speaks these words about himself, he was saying, I'm the Messiah, and I've been anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power to do what God has called me to do. This was a direct statement that he was the Messiah, just as Isaiah had prophesied and described. It implied that Jesus was qualified, and we might say it this way Jesus had a divine commissioning on his life and on his messianic ministry. Isaiah 11 and verse 2 says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42 and verse 1 says this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 48 and verse 16 says approach me and listen to this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time anything existed... I was there, and now the Lord has sent me and his Spirit. So Jesus has this divine commissioning. He's now stepped forward in this public ministry, and there are some things that we learn about the role of the Spirit in the life of Jesus that help us understand both the power of Jesus and also how the Spirit works in our lives as we follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus was born in the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God who conceived Jesus in the womb of his mother, Mary. It was the Spirit of God who superintended that whole process. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 22, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him there at his baptism, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 says Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus was born in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. Luke chapter 4 says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Not that God was tempting him, but God was permitting him to be tempted and tested to demonstrate that he, in fact, uh, had the power to do what God had called him to do. And in all of the life of Jesus, the Spirit of God was essential. Now that's in a little bit it's a mystery it, it blows my mind in a little bit just to th- a little bit just to think about the fact that Jesus worked in the power of the spirit in his earthly ministry and as i make the application to my own life i realize how utterly dependent i am and you are on the work of the spirit in order to do anything that is spiritually or eternally valuable to god As followers of Jesus, the work of the Spirit is essential to our lives. Think about it this way. We'd not even know that we needed to be saved if it were not for the work of the Spirit. Because when we're confronted with the truth about Jesus, and when we're taught about the holiness of God and our sin, and then when there's a stirring in our soul that causes us to see our guilt before a holy God, where does that stirring come from? Where does the conviction come from for our sin? It comes from the Spirit of God. He's stirring us to show our neediness and to show our brokenness before God. And when we exercise faith in Jesus and we're born again, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, how are we born again? By the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who can bring life from death he's the one who can raise us up is it not the spirit of god who seals us for the day of redemption so that when we are saved our salvation is guaranteed in christ that what god has started god will finish what god possesses god will keep is it not the spirit of god that indwells us at salvation when we're saved the spirit of god comes into our lives so that we have all of the spirit of god and then as we yield ourselves up to him, he fills us. And that's why the Bible says we're to keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's not that we only have a certain measure of the Holy Spirit. We have all of him indwelling our lives. But the question is, how much of us does the Holy Spirit have as we are filled to do the work of God? And then it's the Spirit who, who gives you assurance in those moments when you doubt. And the enemy wants you to ask whether or not you're worthy the enemy wants to uh, test your standing he wants to bring doubt into your heart and your mind and it's the spirit of God who's reminding you that you're a child of God And when you uh, get concerned because of your past and you remember the things that you've done and the accuser of the brethren uh, says things to you and leads you to think somehow that you're not really a child of God, it's the Spirit of God that brings assurance in those moments. Is it not the Spirit of God who comforts us in our brokenness? When we lose somebody that we love or we're going through a particularly dark period in our lives and we've got more questions than we've got answers, we've got more problems than we've got solutions, it's the Spirit of God who comforts us and He comes alongside of us and He helps us in our hour of need. Is it not the Spirit of God who counsels us when we have questions and when we come to the Word of God? Remember, He's the one who inspired the Word of God and He's also the one who illuminates the Word of God. So that means when you sit down in the morning and you begin to read through your Bible, you're not alone. It's the Spirit of God who is helping you. He's illuminating the Word that He has inspired, and He's teaching you through that Word. Is it not the Spirit of God that brings fruit and bears fruit in our lives? Whatever we produce in our lives that is of spiritual and eternal value, it comes from God. And if it's the express will of God that you and I be conformed to the image of Jesus, the only way that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus is through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God so that we can bring glory to the Son of God. And Galatians chapter 5 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit that is produced in our lives. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things come because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. So when Jesus said that he had the Spirit upon him, he had divine commissioning, divine presence, and divine power in his life. And when the Spirit of God is upon us and he anoints us to do his work, then we have that same blessing because of the Son of God. And then there's a second truth I want you to see here. Jesus proclaims the good news. He proclaims the good news, verse 18. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, the idea of poverty or the poor can cover a number of different things. The emphasis here clearly is on moral or spiritual poverty. Uh, The word for the poor that is used here, uh, the word that references poverty, is the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word poor comes from a root word that means to be taken to your knees. It's a word that was used for beggars in Jesus' day. It represents people who have absolutely nothing. And to be poor in spirit means to be humble before God. As Jesus proclaims the good news, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're able to recognize our spiritual poverty. So let me say it another way. To be poor spiritually is to recognize that you are bankrupt spiritually before God. You have nothing of value on your own to offer to God. We don't come to God with full hands and offer to God and say, look how much we've done for you. Look how worthy we are. Look how deserving we are to receive your salvation. That's not how we come to God. We come to God in humility with empty hands. And we come to God and we say to him, we have nothing to offer, but you have offered us everything through your son. Now, I am taken aback a little bit in the scripture as I read the extensive treatment of the poor and of poverty. And I don't think we can skip over the physical aspects of this either because their spiritual application to the many verses that also reference the physical poverty that people experience. There is a remarkable emphasis on the physically poor in the Bible. And that's interesting because the world values money, power, prominence, prestige, These are the things that we would exalt. And if we're not careful, even in the church, we can flip the economy of God upside down and we can convince ourselves that the people that are really deserving and the people that are really worthy and the people that really can do something for God are the people that possess those things. You don't believe me? Well, just watch Christian people when somebody that's relatively prominent or who has fame or fortune in the world's eyes when they profess christ how excited the church gets about that well if that person has come to know christ then certainly that's going to make a massive impact on the kingdom of god but do we get as excited when somebody who's poor and broken and unknown who can't really offer anything to anybody gets saved now here's why i ask that question where do we think the power is Do we think the power is in the world's prominence? Do we think the power is in the world's possessions? Do we think the power is in the world's position? Or do we think that the power is in the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, when Jesus is proclaiming this good news here, he's proclaiming it to the poor, to those who need it the most. And it's interesting often that those who are down and out in the world are easier to reach than those who are up and out in a play on words because those who are down and out have nothing from the world's perspective so they realize the dire straits that they're in in their general circumstance of life and they're often more likely to recognize the dire straits that they are in spiritually as well. There's an account in the book of Galatians chapter 2 and long about verse 9 where Paul tells of the time that he and Barnabas met with Peter and James and John, and they were coming together in this discussion about the basics of the gospel. You remember maybe something about that, that there was a dispute over the law and how much of the law needed to be observed and what did it look like for the Jews to to be a part of what the Christians were doing in that early New Testament church. And the Scripture indicates that Paul said James and Cephas and John gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles. Now listen to what he says. They only asked us to remember the poor the very thing that I was eager to do. In a discussion about the gospel, Paul references his concern For the poor. Evidently God cares about those who are in spiritual poverty and God also cares about those who are in physical poverty. God has a special blessing for the poor and uh, the book of James in chapter 2 and verse 2 and following James addressed the problem of favoritism in the church and one of the reasons that he did is God's posture toward the rich and the poor Uh, varies from that of the world. And James said, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and he's dressed in fine clothes and there also comes in a man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and you say, you sit over here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And then he says, listen, my beloved brother, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and to be heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Jesus himself told us to call the poor to come in. Luke chapter 14, go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So the main point here is not, Are you rich or are you poor? That's not the main point in terms of spiritual, uh, in terms of physical possessions. The main point is, do you spiritually see your poverty and your bankruptcy before God and your utter dependence on the grace of God? It's only good news to those who recognize the circumstance that they're in. And then that takes me to the third truth. Jesus has come to set people free. We're going a little deeper here in the gospel. In verse 18, he says, He sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This idea of captives or uh, prisoners has a spiritual application because the word technically means uh, prisoners of war. Now, as far as we know, uh, there were no prisoners directly connected to the congregation in Nazareth. Uh, but the word represents spiritual captivity. And in setting people free, what Jesus does is rescues us from the bondage of captivity or imprisonment. And the reference to our spiritual captivity uh, could have several applications, actually. It could refer in part to the debt that our sin creates, that somebody had to pay the debt. Either we're going to pay the debt, by suffering the consequences of eternal separation from God, or we accept what Jesus has done to pay our debt. This is illustrated in in Luke chapter 7 in the example of the moneylender who had two debtors. You remember the basics of the story. One of the debtors owed a lot to the moneylender, and the other debtor owed not so much. And Jesus asked the question in telling that story after both of those debts were canceled, He said, which one of them do you think is going to be more grateful for what's been done for him? And the answer that came from Simon was the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. So our spiritual debt represents what we need to be set free from. The reference could also be to our spiritual captivity to our enemy, the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy Uh, Luke chapter 8, Jesus went to the Gerasenes uh, that was opposite of Galilee, and when he got out of the boat, he was met with a man who was possessed by many demons, and he had run around without clothes for a long time. He had lived in the tombs. He lived in the caves. He had just wandered around aimlessly, and when he saw Jesus, he begged for Jesus not to torment him because the demons recognized the identity of Jesus this is a man who would be bound up in chains in captivity and he was desperate and Jesus said what's your name and the man replied legion now I don't know about you but that kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I read that just the the level of evil that Jesus was encountering here and also the reminder of the reality of the spiritual darkness that we find ourselves in and Jesus cast the demons out into a herd of pigs. They rushed down the slope into the lake, and they're drowned, and the man was set free. Here's the point. Sin is a prison house. Our sin has us in captivity. Our sin has us bound up to the point that there's nothing we can do on our own to break it. But we sang in that old hymn just a few minutes ago, "O oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King. The triumphs of His grace. You see, so what Jesus does is in setting people free, he recovers the sight of the blind. And that's why we can say, I I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. God removes those scales from our eyes so that we can be set free and see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And Jesus used this idea in explaining the ministry of Paul to him. Acts chapter 26, he said, I'm sending you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And as you know, that's the mission of the church. That's the role of us as believers. That's our opportunity as we go into the world as representatives of Jesus We have been sent to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light because we're bringing the message of the gospel. We're bringing the power of the Spirit. We're bringing the reality of the Son of God. And they're being set free from the power of Satan so they might turn to God you ever thought about that? When you're sharing the gospel, there's a supernatural event that is taking place. The Spirit of God is working in people's hearts, and though they're bound and they're dead in their trespasses and their sins, even though they have scales over their eyes spiritually so that they cannot see, even though they're in the chains of their own sin, that God can set them free in Jesus, that's the gravity of what we're dealing with here. That's what we're talking about, that people would receive forgiveness of their sins and a place with God. And in setting people free, he releases them from oppression. To be oppressed means to be broken in pieces. It means to be shattered or to be crushed. And this is where Jesus meets you. He meets you at your point of need. When you're in the middle of broken life circumstances and you don't know which way to turn, God will meet you at your point of need. When you're in the darkness, and you, for everything that you try to do, cannot see the light, God will meet you at your point of need, and He will show you the way out through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you feel like you are bound up, and you can't get released from whatever the sin is that's holding you back, and is keeping you from serving God, it's God who will set you free and release you. And He speaks here in this, passage from Isaiah 61 uh, in reference to the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was a, in reference to the 50th year, uh, and it's outlined in the book of Leviticus. It was a Sabbath year. It was the end of seven cycles of seven years, and in that year of Jubilee, people would be released from their indebtedness. They would be set free from what they owed. Prisoners would be released Property would be returned to original owners. There would be a year of uh, no work, a Sabbath year. And it represents a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we come to the grace of God. Did you know that in the grace of God, your life with God is not dependent on the circumstances around you? Did you know that in the grace of God, you can live in a perpetual year of jubilee because God's Spirit is upon you and because you've been set free from the great debt that you have, the great guilt that you have before a holy God? This is the beauty of the gospel. And can you imagine the amazement of hearing Jesus explain himself and talk about himself as he did from Isaiah 61? You talk about a short but a powerful sermon. And verse 20 says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. I think there was probably a holy hush that went over the building. I think everybody's eyes were fixed on Jesus. And he said, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled jesus announced in their presence that he was the messiah it also tells us a little something about what jesus thinks about the first testament the old testament because it's all a message beginning right after the fall of man it's all a message about the hope of redemption that is to come in the messiah And I close with this idea. There are only two possible responses to Jesus. Faith or unbelief. Now they were all speaking well of him and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. The words of Jesus won immediate approval but it soon turned to cynicism. Is this not Joseph's son? This was a small town. Maybe not even 2,000 people that live there. And Jesus goes to the heart of their rejection. He knows what they're going to say. He knows the objections they're going to raise. He raises them before they even raise them. And here's what I want you to see. Their lack of faith was not from a lack of evidence. In fact, Jesus alludes here, to miracles that had already taken place in Capernaum their lack of acceptance came from unbelief and he draws the illustration a couple of ways here he, he gives the example first of all of Elijah and he talks about the miracle that happened with the widow and her son I mean there were a lot of people that were hungry around that widow and her son but because she was willing to believe God blessed her in the midst of the darkness, she was able to see the light. He also referenced Elisha. And there's a lot of people that had leprosy during that time, but there was only one of them that was cleansed. And the reason he was cleansed is because he ultimately obeyed what God told him to do and believed. All they had to do was believe in Jesus. And what you need to do today is believe in Jesus. The citizens of Nazareth heard enough. It was about enough Jesus had told them they were poor and blind and captive and oppressed. They weren't even willing to sit through the benediction. But you think for a moment here, they knew Jesus. He'd never done anything wrong in their midst. He'd never lied. He'd never disobeyed. He'd never been unkind. He was the most loving person they could have ever known. And yet they rejected him. And they wanted to kill him. And on the Sabbath, no less. But there was divine protection on his life at that point because his mission was not yet complete. My message for you in closing is this How will you respond to the message of Jesus? How will you respond to the message of Jesus? Let's bow our heads together just for a moment. God, thank you for faith and for the gift of faith. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit that shows us our need for Christ and brings conviction and ultimately regeneration when we trust in Jesus' death and his resurrection. I pray that in our lives we would realize the magnitude of what the Savior has done for us in the gospel and that we would live in light of it. But Father, maybe there's some people here today who have not yet taken that step. They they know they're not Christians. They know they're not followers of Jesus. We've been given some insight in this passage of some essential truths about Jesus. And now people are at a point of decision. Either believe or not. Trust or reject. Receive or deny i pray that faith would reign supreme through jesus in this place and if there are any here who have not taken that step that today would be the day god you're a good god we honor you we thank you for this account of the life of jesus and i pray that we would respond and live in a way that honors him and all that we do And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.